Rulemaking is one of the most widespread activities in the federal government, and while there are extensive rules for rulemaking itself, the extent of annual rulemaking is impressive when you add it all up. My next guest has been keeping a tally for years and has a few ideas for reform. Wayne Cruz is the Vice President for Policy and Senior Fellow at the Conservative-Leaning Competitive Enterprise Institute, and he joins me now. Mr. Cruz, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I was looking at this in the context of the idea of finding better notice methodologies so that Mm -hmm. people affected by rulemaking will know about them. And a recent set of recommendations that went to the Administrative Conference of the United States said that simply posting in the Federal Register is insufficient. But aside from that, the volume of it can be really daunting for affected parties or people that want to weigh in on rulemaking. Give us a sense of the number of Federal Register pages every year that get generated and how that translates back to the code of federal regulations. Well, sure. This This is an important topic. You know, the federal government does things... In one of two ways, generally, it will spend, it'll run uh, programs, and it'll also regulate, which affects the private sector. And regulations do matter a lot because we get, say, a few dozen laws every year, but generally we get at least 3,000 regulations every year. So you've got a multiple of regulations coming out of, you know, some 18 regulations for every law that comes out. And on top of that, speaking of the the notice that you're talking about, there are these so-called guidance documents. These are the notices, memoranda, circulars, bulletins, administrative interpretations, all these ways that agencies also serve notice to the public with respect to what agencies are up to. Well, how do we go about the measurement? No matter what you think of the federal government spending, you can always look up the debt. You can always see what the deficit is, but it's not the same for regulations. You do get the notice in the federal register, but remember, the federal register now is exceeding 70,000 pages a year. We had several record-setting years under Obama where the federal register exceeded 80,000 pages. Now we're at the point where under Biden, it looks like after the Trump hiatus, you might say, remember Trump put in place a one-in, two-out procedure for regulations that uh, worked especially uh, for a time in the early part of the administration. It becomes harder to do that, you know, law of diminishing returns. But President Biden has eliminated the Trump restraints on regulation with respect with the one-in, two-out and has asked agencies to work together on several whole-of-government campaigns that are aimed at equity, climate crisis, competition policy, and so forth. So I would expect you're going to see additional regulations from the Biden administration. And and one indicator of this, I just noticed, if you were to go to the Federal Register website and look up its database on the number of regulations that came out last year in 2021 under Biden, you're going to find there were 3,000. But if you look at the new updates that has been posted on PDFs on the Federal Register webpage, guess what? The number of rules for last year has jumped up to over 4,000. It's been a long time since we had more than 4,000 rules. That was back in the 90s. So it's very, very important that the public get noticed. And when you talk about the number of pages, 70,000, 80,000, that's a given year's set of federal registers, and it resets to zero at the new year? That's right. That's right. You get, you get you know, 70,000 pages a year um, at, at this point. Under Trump, they, they drop down significantly. But in his last year, like any president, when, you, when your term is ending and, you're, and the next guy is coming in, 
you'll often see what uh, referred to as midnight rules or midnight regulations where they try to rush out the last things they want to get on the books before they depart from office. Same thing was happening under Trump. In his case, arguably, but not all, arguably some of what he was doing was deregulatory. And you saw the same thing under, under uh, um, um, President Obama. You saw the big jump during his last year. But yes, you get... 70,000 pages, roughly, give or take, 3,000 rules that come out every year. And then those rules and regulations wind up, of course, in the Code of Federal Regulations, which now exceeds uh, 186,000 pages. Something else that, that took place that's interesting in this regard, too, just this past week, the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs had held a confirmation hearing for the nomination for the head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs within the Office of Management and Budget. And some of these same questions that you're talking about, how to best give public notice about rules and regulations, did come up. A big topic at that, at that hearing was what will be done with respect to dis better disclosure of agency guidance documents. And also, the Office of Management and Budget is updating the so-called Circular A4 that looks at the regulatory impact analyses for rules and regulations right. and how they go about assessing costs and benefits. So there are a lot of things in play, a lot of rules in the works, but there are also a lot of things in play in terms of the policy of how we address them and disclose them. But to the extent that more governance now happens through guidance document as opposed to law or as opposed to regulation, we don't have a code of federal regulations to uh, disclose guidance documents, and that's something that I think policymakers are going to be looking at over the next couple of years. We're speaking with Wayne Cruz. He's the vice president for policy and senior fellow at the Conservative Competitive Enterprise Institute. And about those guidance documents, there was a Trump executive order that agencies had to post them at their websites. And that executive order was rescinded by President Biden, I think, on the first day. Isn't that a great way for the general public to understand that wants to comply with a rule, whether they like it or not? I would affirm that uh, guidance document transparency and disclosure is a bipartisan issue. There's something called the Good Act, which stands for guidance out of darkness, <laughs> which would require the uh, disclosure and posting in, you know, in, a, in a single location of agency guidance documents. And guess what? As a California senator, Kamala Harris, the vice president now, was a co-sponsor of the GOOD Act, the Guidance Out of Darkness legislation. Under the Trump administration, his uh, executive orders on guidance documents required a portal. Agencies began to put them together. I can tell you, I had, before the Trump executive order, I did an inventory of regulatory dark matter, which is what I took to calling the hidden guidance documents, you might say. The most I could come up with, Tom, was a few thousand guidance documents. After I did that report, the House Government Affairs Committee looked at the guidance document phenomenon and issued a report called Shining Light on Regulatory Dark Matter. And even then, agencies only came up with about 13,000 guidance documents that they were easily able to disclose to the committee. After the Trump executive order on disclosure of guidance documents at each agency's website, at you know, ag agency name gov slash guidance. The agencies at that point had put out about 73,000. When Biden came in, I did another tally, and I have come up now with 107,000 guidance documents that you can readily access. 
So it's a good thing that Trump did that. I, I think I'm disappointed that Biden has eliminated it. But I think if we can disclose to the public that, hey, we know a lot more now about guidance documents than we did prior to that Trump order, that we might get a little bit of bipartisan traction in terms of disclosure and, and maintaining and preserving that disclosure of guidance documents. That's the impression I got, too, from the hearing last week on regulatory oversight uh, when you had Kristen Sinema asking about the disclosure of regulations and making sure that the public was able to find these guidance documents. So despite the heated partisan environment that we're in right now, I do think that there is some latent ability and willingness and desire to agree on addressing the guidance document phenomenon because as the federal government does more things, you know, in the wake of COVID, in the wake of various crises, it becomes more important to disclose and track guidance documents as they assume more importance in what the federal government's doing. Wayne Cruz is the vice president for policy and senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Thanks so much for joining me. You bet. It's been my pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when 
I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, 
advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.